In this podcast episode, we want to introduce you to our BCEN and friend, Alan Wolf. Janie Shoemaker and Mark Eggers talk with Alan about his career and his current role as Senior Director of Education at LifeLink, along with what he likes to do for fun. Listen to Alan's highlights of amazing stories that he has been a part of. This episode is called Meet Our BCEN Celebrity. Hello, and welcome to BCN and Friends Podcast, where we hold interesting conversations about learning with a range of thought leaders, BCN certification holders, and industry professionals. But most importantly, to create value and insight for you, our professional nurses across the emergency spectrum. We hope you find our discussions interesting, informative, sometimes funny, sometimes serious, but always valuable. I'm Mark Eggers, Manager of Education Technology Services at BCN, and one of your hosts for today. I'm joined by my co-host, Janie Shoemaker, CEO at BCN. Hi, Janie. Hi, Mark. In this episode of BCN and Friends, we have our BCN friend, Alan Wolf. Janie, could you please tell us about our BCN and friend, Alan? I sure will, Mark. It's my pleasure to introduce Alan Wolf. Alan was born in Mobile, Alabama, and currently resides in Minneapolis. Alan is currently the Senior Director of Education at LifeLink3, and Air Medical Transport Company. For fun, Alan likes to travel. He has been to all 50 states and loves to travel outside the U.S., but for now, COVID has put a damper on that. Alan also loves college sports and has been to the NCAA men's basketball games every year since 1998. His new love is watching women's college gymnastics. Alan says it's just amazing. Alan is a critical care nurse who worked in the hospital for about seven years in the CVICU and the SICU and the emergency department. Alan completed his master's in critical care clinical specialist from Marymount University. And Alan started as a flight nurse in 1990 and has had some really amazing career highlights that we are going to ask him to tell us about during this podcast. Alan has won every major award in the industry except the safety award, so I'm sure that will be on the radar next. And Alan is the chair-elect for the Board of Certification for Emergency Nursing's Board of Directors. Alan is a national and international speaker on a variety of topics. He's also the one celebrity that I personally know. I don't know any others. Please help me welcome Alan to the BCEN and Friends podcast. Welcome, Alan. Thank you. Yeah, there we go. Thank you so much. So, Alan, tell our audience a little bit about yourself. Some of them probably already know you because you are always, people always say, who's the celebrity? Do you know any celebrities? Yes, I do. I know Alan Wolf. He's my, he's my celebrity that I know. That's what I always tell people. So some people may know you, but I bet you will teach them something new. And then some people um, will get to know you on this podcast. But tell us about yourself. Uh, I know you live in Minneapolis. How'd you get there? Uh, what are you doing for work? Tell us a little more about that uh, senior education job you've got, and then just tell us anything else you'd like to know that we didn't talk about during the intro. Great. Thank you so much, Janie. Um, I am currently, I'll just talk about what I'm doing now, I am the Senior Director of Education for LifeLink3. And what LifeLink3 is, it's just a uh, helicopter company that's owned by a consortium of hospitals here in Minnesota that we cover the Iowa, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Dakota area, you know, so it's up here near Canada. Uh, I've been in Minneapolis in this role uh, about 20 months. I moved here in July and I moved here in 
the middle of COVID. And uh, I, uh, when I got offered the job, I was offered the job in May and it was right before George Floyd was um, murdered. And so when I was hired, the next day after George Floyd was murdered, they called me and they, they said, we're just checking in to see if you're okay and if you're still coming. <laughs> because obviously the city was a mess and that what had happened. And I said, sure, I'm, I'm still coming. Yeah, so um, I moved here from uh, Denver, Colorado. My previous job, I was uh, director of education for Air Methods and Air Methods is a large, probably it's the largest medevac company on one single FAA certificate in the US. And I was responsible for education for uh, 1500 people and 168 helicopter bases, which is just mind blowing. Yes, wow. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> I did that for about a eight, uh, for 10 years. Uh, before coming here to LifeLink. And I moved from Colorado to Minnesota. And uh, people say, God, you like these cold states. But I was born in Alabama, you know, and I was there, you know, I, I, at 18, 19 years old, I left and I went up to Washington, D.C. And I was there for 30 years. And at 50 years old, I decided to switch jobs after being at the one job for almost 20 years. And that got me to Air Methods which I had to move to San Diego, San Diego to Denver, and then to Minnesota. Um, Minnesota here, although it's chilly, like today is a uh, pretty warm 22. <laughs> you know what? It's so funny. I thought I would never be one of those people that say, God, it's so warm today. But after <laughs> you, but you know, when you're sitting there and you're in the temperatures below zero, you know, yeah. 10, 20 below zero for you're days. Right. And you go outside and it's 20, you go, oh my God, it is actually warm today. Yeah, I mean, you could just go out without a coat in that. I know, I know, it's crazy, you know, it's like a, sweat, a sweatshirt and it's 20 degrees. You're like, oh, it's a warm day. Let me go for a walk yeah. in 20 degrees, you know. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm adapting to it. Um, so I'll, um, that's my career in a, in, a, in a nutshell of how I got here. Uh, some of the things I like to do, you mentioned already with the sports stuff. Mm-hmm. And I developed that to... to uh, take the place of time of, of getting outside during COVID and to get in to do things. So I go to a lot of sporting events. I just recently, the big thing I did is recently here in Minnesota, I walked across a frozen lake. <laughs> so I must be out of my mind, but you know, people do that here. The lakes are frozen. You know, you can't walk across a river like the Mississippi River, but you can walk across a lake because the river, the water's moving under it, yeah. and of course you can fall in it. Oh yeah, so, yeah they lake. probably have ice fishing. Do you have ice fishing there? Yes, yes, yes. You had to put those out. little those little uh, shack things on yes. the lake. Yes, that's, yes. Crazy. that's so crazy. Yeah, they drive their cars <laughs> on it. It's crazy. So I did that. Yeah. So that's my career in a nutshell. Like wow. Well, now I, that is your career in a nutshell, but I also happen to know that you've had some pretty amazing opportunities. I know that you, I know that you, um, I know that you meant your own celebrity, the basketball. I'll let you tell us who that is. You had some, weren't you at the Pentagon at a very particular time? Those are two two things that come yeah. to mind. Do you want to tell us a little bit about some of those highlights that are just like most people never would have these kind of experiences that right. you had? Right. I uh, back in two thousand and one, when I was uh, a nurse back in D.C., I was a flight nurse for ten years at the Washington Hospital Center uh, at a program called MedStar. And in around two thousand, 
um, I became the chief flight nurse of their flight program, which is located right there in the city. And I was also the clinical nurse specialist uh, of their trauma unit. So it was a dual role. You know, I got my master's in critical care. And um, I was off on September 11th. It was like a Wednesday, Thursday, I think. Uh, I don't know how you get off in a week, but I was off. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, I had woken up to hear about this stuff in New York. And I can remember I lived in a townhouse and I lived in Arlington, Virginia. And for those who don't know where Arlington is, it's just right across the Potomac River in D.C. It's really where the Pentagon is. It's in Arlington, it's not in D.C. Yeah. And so I lived very close to the Pentagon, that's probably less than a mile. I lived on the golf course and uh, the golf course, not the pretty end of the golf course, the end where the balls come in your yard from the driving range, that part of it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I was talking to a buddy of mine on my deck about uh, New York. And as we're talking about it on the deck, uh, I could hear a plane getting louder and louder. And before you know it, just overhead, with a plane flying by just above the house, not even two, 300 feet off the ground, flying right over the house and take it now. The airport is near the house, but um, that is not a flight path. And so it was so low and it banked a turn over the, near the golf course. And I could see the faces of the people in the plane as it banked, made a turn over the golf course. And so I see all of a sudden I see black smoke and I thought, oh, my God, I, 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 something happened. I think the plane crashed, but I wasn't sure. And I didn't know what to do. So I hung up the phone, my buddy, because I said, I got to go. Something's going on. And I looked at the, the, the TV and they said, we just got reports that a plane hit the Pentagon. So I knew that I had to go to the hospital. That's where they couldn't go. And so I immediately grabbed my bag, jumped on my scooter. Now, scooter. <laughs> Not a car, a scooter. Yeah, yeah. And I bought one. It was like a Vespa. And it was the smartest thing I had ever done because traffic was a nightmare. And I was on a scooter. It's in right, right across. So anyway, I immediately, I go straight to the Pentagon to see what's going on. I get down there and this black bellowing smoke and it's papers everywhere. The lawn's going off and you see people rock, running out of the building. Uh, as a, it's a road that goes straight down a hill to get there. A cop had blocked the street and wouldn't let me go any further. And he was trying to evacuate people out of the building. And you can see people come out the building. I saw women literally taking those high heel shoes off oh. and just putting them in their hand and running to the parking lot to get in their cars mm. out of there. Yeah. Well, so when I got down uh, uh, down there, uh, I uh, cutting. I, was just, I just wanted to cut by there to see it on my way to the hospital. Was really what I was doing. And so it was just a madhouse. And so as I got through the city, I got into D.C., Nothing had really, people in D.C. really didn't know what had happened to the Pentagon. Remember, this is before cell phones and social media. Yeah, right. So the people in D.C., unless you looked across the river and saw the black smoke, you had no idea. So I got to the hospital uh, and in my way to the hospital, the F-15s were flying over and people started to come on on the streets. And I get to the hospital and there were two patients there already. Two patients had already made it from the Pentagon to this burn center already. And so I had to work to take care of any, all those patients. So how I got to meet somebody famous after all of that, the hospital, they had a big night. It was the first night of the NBA and it was Michael Jordan's return to basketball after three, this is his third time coming back from retirement at the Washington Bullets. That's what we're called at the time. Now it's the Washington Wizards. 
And so the hospital had to pick somebody to go represent the hospital for a number of different people who were considered heroes of 9-11. <laughs> so I was the one, you know, so I said, oh, great. So I go down there and they do a little ceremony in the beginning. And then I, I thought they were going to sing it to your seats, but I didn't realize before the game, the big ceremony, they bring out the two teams, the Philadelphia 76ers and the Washington uh, Bullets. Bullets. They bring the heroes out. They put a hero between each group of players. And so I'm like the last one, next to the last one. And they pull me out as the lights are flashing. And they put me right next to Michael Jordan. (laughs) And my heart is pounding because I'm sitting here next to Michael Jordan. So I feel like it next to him. I patted him on the waist and I said, hello, my name is Alan Wolf. And he says, hello, my name is Michael Jordan. And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? (laughs) Everybody knows you. But in front of him was 50 photographers. They were just taking pictures and he had his head down the whole time. And I said to him, this is just crazy, you know? And he says to me, Michael says to Alan Wolf, (laughs) Michael says, I'm just a famous basketball player. I just play a sport. He said, what you do is simply amazing. And I thought, who knew Michael was so sensitive and cared? Wow. About I know, yeah. I know. My private conversation with Michael Jordan. So that That's was my cool. Michael Jordan story. So it was on the cover of the paper in Alabama. <laughs> my dad, who's 84 now, was watching it. He loves basketball. He was sitting in his house in Alabama and watching the game. And I had no idea it was going to be on television, so I told nobody. And imagine sitting there, and they're showing Michael Jordan. They get ready to introduce Michael Jordan, and your son's face pops up. Right oh, now. my gosh. Oh, that, he just must have about fell out of his chair. I know. He couldn't breathe. He was like, what, what, what? So that's how I became a celebrity in Mobile, Alabama. Wow. All right, right. Crazy story. Now, yeah, but now your, your status goes far beyond that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That is so neat, Alan. You really have had quite the, quite the career. Something to be very proud. And you're not even you're not even done. So let's I see know, what you're doing next. Oh, I know. I keep thinking. I keep. I feel really young, but I know that this is the downside of the you know career. You can only work so so long, you know. And so just want to go up on an upswing and keep doing good work. Yeah. You know, yeah. after you go out in retirement. So you sure. Know. Well. One thing that you've been involved with for a long time is the Board of Certification for Emergency Nursing. We'll just call that BCEN from here on out. When did you, I'm, I mean, you would have started as an item writer. How long ago was that? I think I started in 2007, 2008 mm-hmm. as an item writer. And the reason I submitted an item writer is I figured I had this incredible, just at the time, career of, I had the opportunity to work in a trauma unit that constantly got sick patients in an emergency setting. And then I had kids, CVICU experience. So I had all that in my mind from knowing all this cardiovascular stuff. And then I worked at SICU and plus I had my master's. So I figured, oh, I should probably do, uh, be an item writer for this, you know, cause I always was involved in something, you know, always involved in something. So I submitted, I was selected as an item writer uh, for the BCN and I did that for several years. Um, I was also became the president of the Flight Nurse Association Mm-hmm. in 2014 yeah, and in 20 yeah remember yeah in 20 I, I remember yeah, I think it's 2015 I came on the board uh, uh, of directors for the BCN before, yep. before that when I was an item writer I got moved up to what's called the ECRC the exam construction review committee, committee yeah looks at the exam and then from there 
to the board. So I've been a board since I think 2015, I think. Yeah, and now now you're our chair elect, and you Isn't will be that, our you will be our next chairperson. I know. Isn't that crazy? Now talk about going on the upswing. That's awesome. I know. Hit the pinnacle right at the right time. At yeah. Right. So, Alan, you said you're always involved in something, and a lot of that is volunteerism. Why do you think that's so important? What would you tell our audience about what that means to you? I think, and I've always have believed that I one I come from a family of nurses. Uh, my dad had 15 brothers and sisters and four or five of those were uh, nurses. And uh, my mother was a nurse's aide. And then a lot of those were educators. So the nurse educator piece has always been a part of, uh, of my life. And school has been all a part of my life and working has been a part of my life. My granddad was a big in the civil rights movement and he always volunteered and expected us to participate in volunteering. And so in, in Alabama at the time, and so it's always been something, I guess, in the family that we've done. And yeah. so uh, I always, always have vol- volunteered for, uh, for, for things. Regarding this and why I'm involved in the nursing piece is that uh, I think being, as I think it, for me, to think I can t- this, pat myself on the back for a second, is that I think I'm pretty well-rounded, you know what I mean? Because I've kind of done the hospital piece, I've kind of done the clinical nurse specialist piece, I've done the ED, I've done the inner city ED. Oof. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm doing the CVICU, which is at a very wealthy hospital, you know, and then a CVICU at another hospital. So I can have a well-rounded experience. And a flight nurse, you have to be an expert in everything. And so um, I think that makes me really well-rounded and so it makes me think I have a lot to share you know yeah of, of what I experienced and things like that yeah I agree and this is a great segue into my next um thought that my next thing that I want to talk to you about um you don't get where you are Alan without being a lifelong learner you would not have been successful uh getting there with your scooter, you knew exactly what you needed to do. You had your go bag ready. You're on your scooter, which probably was really smart because you would have never gotten there otherwise. Uh, And you're going across to the hospital when you see this thing happen and you're there to take care of those first two patients that are coming in. And I'm certain that everybody was really glad you were there. And you've had this amazing career where you've probably count, no doubt you've, you've touched countless lives. Um, but you don't get where you are without putting the work in. And much of that work is lifelong learning. What would you say to our nurses that are listening? Because, you know, it's hard right now for a nurse taking care of clinical nurse, taking care of patients to have the energy and the time. But it's also it's also disastrous if you don't put that time in. So what do you have to say about that? I think professional development is the key to mental sanity and uh, uh, career advancement, um, though it, it just goes hand in hand. And I think if you're not moving forward, you're behind. You know, you just can't sit and rely on, well, I'm done. I'm not going to try to learn or develop myself in any way. You just kind of kind of have to. And so uh, even when I got, I got my bachelor's, I was a what they call a, uh, not an organic was the word. It was a traditional Nerd, uh, student, meaning that I, I wasn't an RN already when I went to, to college. A lot of the, my classmates are RNs already. I was just organic and didn't know anything or traditional. And so yeah. I got my, my bachelor's there. And then the hospital had said, uh, we're going for magnet. We need 
these nurse leaders to have their masters in the field was the responsible. And so I had never thought of getting a master's degree, but I thought, oh, I can do this. You know, I've been doing this a while. How hard can it be? You know, and so I always wanted to be clinical specialist because it was focused on critical care and a lot of education and research. And so I went to school at Marymount University in Arlington, Virginia for my uh, master's, went to George Mason for my bachelor's in Virginia. And um, I got that. Uh, and when I was in my class, everybody was a nurse practitioner. What's now I look back is that, man, they were, they saw it coming. <laughs> it's that, you know, nurse practitioner stuff is everywhere, you know, and clinical nurse specialists are not the way it used to be. And so um, just that kind of learning always uh, followed me. Um, certifications was another big piece of that. You know, I got my first one way back when, when critical care, when I was in the CVIC or CCRN. And then after that, I just started adding to the rest of them, you know, and I think the reason I did th those like the CFRN, the CTRN, and the recent trauma one I, I got, you know, two years ago, um, is all of those validates my knowledge, you know what I mean? And I think it just um, makes me makes me feel, it makes others feel too, that this person has validated the competency in a particular, a particular field. And so that's why I've always done those and encourage others to, to do that because it's important. It's important that you validate your life, your, your specialty besides just have a nursing license. So that's, I think it's really important to do. Well, thank you for that. I can't say that I disagree with you at all. I applaud everything you just said. So thank you for, for sharing those thoughts um, about lifelong learning and uh, how important that is. Yeah, so I, I'm going to quit hogging the conversation and let Mark get in on the action. I think Mark wants to ask you some, he wants to talk to you about a couple of things. Here. I do. I want to ask you some things. Now, you've done a lot of things in your life, man. Michael Jordan, you've been all the right places at the right time for things. Uh, just a lot of things have happened. But can you tell us about a person or a moment in your career that greatly impacted you? Uh, I think there'll be a couple. I think patient-wise... I would say the first time that I was working in the ICU, I, I took care of a 15-year-old white girl who got hit. I was driving a car by herself. I guess she lost control, hit, uh, hit a tree, and she had traumatic drain, brain injury. She lived in the Burbs in Virginia, and her family came in, and that she just wasn't doing well. They felt that she was brain dead, and uh, you know, family was really upset. And they really wanted to donate her organs, but they really couldn't because when they did the brain study, she just didn't fit the criteria to be truly brain dead to harvest her organs. And so they were at the, at the, at the, the uh, unit in the bedside and she was declining and declining. And so I went and got the family and I said, oh, she's not doing well. And I asked you to come to the bedside. So I went to the, the, the room. And they come in the bedside, and, you know, her, her, her uh, heart rate's dropping and her blood pressure's real high, which is not a good sign with traumatic, traumatic brain injury. And so things were going uh, down, down south and there were some other family members there in the room. And so I was just trying to get out the room and the dad says to me, I'm trying to cry. The dad says to me, Alan, I want you here at our bedside, because we consider you as family, because oh. I had to take care of this girl this time, you know, and this has been years ago, and as you can see, yep. 
it still gets to me, you know? Sure. And it's somebody I didn't even know. I mean, I, I don't know them. I was just a nurse, you know? And they just valued what I had done for that time for their teenager who they had to watch decline and die at the bedside, but they really wanted to, to give her organs away and they couldn't, you know, and, um, and she died. So uh, I never could, uh, stayed in contact with them after that, you know, kind of, you know, that's where it stopped. But I always, always have I've thought of her uh, when I think about just my career of a patient, like, that kind of sticks in your mind. I think of that, that girl, you know, and her family asking me to be at their bedside, to be with them, to do that. When I could have easily sit outside, pull the curtain, close the door, and the whole family do that thing, they really want me to do that. So that's the biggest thing with, for them. Career-wise, that would be uh, a teacher. When I was uh, in my teens, remember, I'm born in the 60s, obviously, and in Alabama, we had, we had segregation in the 70s. Uh, so I had to be bused from the black neighborhood I lived in to the white school across town, which was not a big issue. You know, I just didn't have any white friends. We most of us didn't as we didn't kind of live together. We lived in obviously different then. And but uh, it was a teacher in the local school. Uh, his name was Mr. McNally and is a, a older white guy, older. You know, he's in his 80s now, but for me, he's probably in his 40s, 30s and 40s. And what he did is that he would go to the library in our neighborhood and give free lessons on geometry and algebra and science, math. Wow. Because he understood that those not underprivileged, everybody's underprivileged these days, <laughs> but these, uh, the kids in this neighborhood needed an advantage if they were going over across the town to do that. And on his own, not charging a dime, this white man got in this library and taught us about algebra and geometry and those kind of things. And so it has been extremely valuable because I was one of those people, one of those, you know, 12, 13 year olds sitting there listening to him every Saturday morning, you know, for weeks to do that. And so I, I've never forgotten him. He's still alive, you know, in, wow. in Alabama, in Mobile. Um, and it was a teacher that I thought, man, he you know, with a, with a visionary and just helped my career, my, as a transitioning from the high school, I, I, it's just amazing. Wow. I, I just, I just want to say, Alan, it's very clear to me how you have such a heart for giving back. This is, you know, talk that, that patient story you told, I'm almost in tears. Um, but you've, when I listen to you talk about your family and this particular man, you had people that show they they showed you how to do it, and uh, I just think that's that's incredible. I thank you, thank you, really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. You know, and I, I was just thinking, uh, you were, you were excited to meet Michael Jordan. Little did he know who he met. <laughs> you know, he he Isn't met that somebody. The truth? Yeah. Little Michael Jordan's lucky day. He most like tells his friends the same story, only reverse. <laughs> you know, he just well, Alan, you know. You mentioned coattailing as a way to get others involved. Can you tell us what you mean by that? Yeah, what coattailing is, is that um, as I became um, known as a, a speaker or expert in a particular, on a topic or field, um, um, I felt that for others to get involved is something called role modeling or coattailing. Role modeling is allowing people to see something and want to mimic that. And so coattailing allows you to bring on people with you uh, so they can get that experience, you know, that they normally would have and to be able to participate. For instance, at a conference, 
if I'm doing a conference and I'm a the speaker on something, I'll have a co-speaker. That co-speaker may not be a person that anybody knows or, or is a good speaker, or but a neophyte that needs to get exposure. And so I would do that quite frequently is pair myself with people to allow them to get exposure on the platform. I would do the, uh, some talking, obviously, because, um, you know, I'm on the docket to speak, but I would obviously turn it over to others to allow them to coattail to be uh, to be seen and heard to develop their own career. So I've done a lot with the speaking portion in the authorships or books or writing. Um, a, a girl named Carol Rowling. Carol Rowling is a clinical nurse specialist. I think she lives in Florida now. Um, she did live in North Carolina, but I met her in, in, in D.C. at the Washington Hospital Center. And she was the first one who allowed me to coattail with her. She was she wrote pretty frequently for the Critical Care Journal for AACN. And one day she asked me, hey, do you want to do an article with me? You know, and that was the introduction to editing and writing. Uh, I did one with her on blunt tr uh, chest trauma, you know, specifically to the heart, you know, and I wrote the article and I was, you know, she didn't have as much trauma experience that I had, obviously, but uh, she was an experienced writer and valued at that particular organization, you know, in writing. So I coattail with her. So I, I made a point to start doing that in, in the writing piece. So currently I am the editor along with two other uh, people for, for the ASNA book known as Principles and Practice of Patient Transport. And it is the granddaddy, <laughs> the granddaddy of them all when it comes to books in the air medical uh, ground transport industry. And uh, I'm the, the editor along with uh, two others. And so uh, just recently that book has, it's on the sixth edition that's coming up. Uh, I introduced this year to Elsevier to have a companion book that's just as big and Elsevier accepted. It's like a critical care book attached to this, this other book. So it's two big, big books. And so I'm the editor. So when I mentioned coattailing now in this role of an editor, I have the ability to work with people that may not have a lot of experience writing uh, medical stuff, but are smart and excellent clinicians. That's their opportunity to get their foot in the door and get published because uh, everybody wants to get published or needs to get published to be seen. So um, that's what I call as coattailing, both from speaking, coattailing from speaking, and then of course, publication. Very good. Excellent. Thank you. Alan, I'm going to turn this a little bit to what we call our rapid fire question section. So, uh, what would you be doing if you were not in your current role? You know what? I wish that I was a singer. Oh, my God. There we go. <laughs> you ever watch those shows like American Idol or The Voice? Yeah. And you kept thinking, God, I wish that I could sing. You know? And what kind of music would you like to sing? What genre? See, I like to do those those love ballads like the Luther Vandross. Kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. I'm with you. Yeah. <laughs> you All know, right. the singer's like, that's yeah. That's not a singer. That's a singer. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, well, I think we must have a karaoke party in our future. Oh, my God. I can't sing, though. That's the thing. No. I can't sing. But you're among oh, friends at the karaoke, so <laughs> who cares? Exactly. So I wish I could, Mark, but I, I wish I could be a uh, I would be a singer. Be, I'm with you. I like that. That's <laughs> Good. Now, a few favorite questions. And you can say skip if you don't want to, but uh, a current favorite book. Uh, my current favorite book. <laughs> we were just saying, is it how to sing in five easy lessons? Is that? Your <laughs> no, dude, I wish, okay. I wish, I wish, okay. I wish. 
<laughs> book, the book is called, I just got it, it's called Because I Said I Would. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I haven't started yet. It's by uh, Alex Sheen. And so um, I can't wait to, to look at this one. Uh, I just recently finished a, uh, a course on diversity and inclusion through Cornell University, mm -hmm. the online course I took. And I took it not for work. It is because, you know, being a minority in this, I'm a, I'm a unicorn, I know, in air medical, is that people will ask me all the time about how do I, how do we attract, you know, more black people? How do we attract more women? Asking me, because obviously I'm the unicorn in the room. <laughs> I'm sure that's why. And so the issue like diversity, inclusion, and that whole thing, I didn't know a lot about it. So I took a course at Cornell. And so I just finished in December. So now I have a lot of stuff in this head. <laughs> you know, about good. that's good we've got some board work we're going to need that stuff in your head for us. Great. <laughs> awesome good. awesome and how about your current favorite movie you know my favorite movie is mommy dearest i've seen it at least 70 times where i would sit there and say the words out of joan crawford's mouth <laughs> before she says isn't that stupid i'm oh, just yeah. I, i'm obsessed with that movie i just watched I think it great I, I can hear you sitting there. You know every line after seventy times watching. You should know. Yeah. <laughs> no, I know. That's crazy. That's crazy. And how about a favorite song? Um, my favorite song. I am a Diana Ross fanatic. I've seen Diana Ross forty-two times, and I tell you, Mark, I'm not a stalker. I promise. <laughs> oh, is that a concert? Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. So her music. Anything that she puts out, I just love the music. So uh, any Diana Ross song, my favorite one of hers is Ain't No One How Enough. It's one of my favorites, you know, but I love her music. And her daughter's very talented too, by the way. I yeah, mean, I know. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? I know. <laughs> Great. And how about your favorite comfort food or meal that you enjoy? Recently, it was chips and salsa. Oh, man. I would buy the big Doritos with the lime in it, and then get the 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 uh, uh, pico from the store that's already made, and then I would put jalapenos in it, and more cilantro, and more onions, and I would eat literally almost the whole bag. And then I realized these bags in my eyes <laughs> due to sodium and salt. <laughs> so I I had to stop. I I was literally eating eating a bag every four days. I was thinking this is wow. heart failure coming if i don't stop it so i stopped doing that and now my new thing is fruit i just eat fruit 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 that's my new thing fruit's good we need to get doritos to make a lower sodium chip yeah exactly i mean really they should they should consider that <laughs> not, not so anybody in our audience knows anybody to tell that to please go ahead because <laughs> the rest of your salsa and whatnot was all vegetables it's all good we just yeah. need salt in the chip Yes, it's so good. Yeah, excellent, man. excellent. Okay. And uh, with your schedule and all you got going on, everything just going, as I said, any other hobbies or interests? Uh, I think my biggest one is uh, traveling outside the country. I usually would go twice a year somewhere outside the country. Uh, due to COVID these past couple of years, I've stayed, I'm, I'm afraid to go out the country because I figured, one, I won't be able to get back in. <laughs> you know, you don't want to be trapped somewhere. You're like, I don't want to be out there somewhere. Or you get too sick and then you end up in a hospital in a foreign country. 
and you don't understand stuff. So I like to travel. So the past two years, I've done Alaska a lot. Alaska is amazing, you know, amazing. So every, not in the winter, <laughs> I've gone in the summer, um, every year this past couple of years, but it is truly amazing. So I, I like the travel piece. So you go up to like Denali or Anchorage or Prudhoe, where do you I go? Went, I, I went to Anchorage and I was there for four days. And um, I have a buddy who is a, a flight paramedic there who I work with in DC. I stay at his house, him and his wife's house. And I just did the train from Anchorage to Denali. This summer, I'll go up to Denali in, in my trip there this time. But it was stunning to see just moose just walking on the bike trail and rams, the ram, yeah, rams that mm -hmm. are on the mountains. It is just unbelievable. You become truly an environmentalist when you see that place because you're thinking, we cannot melt this. Are you kidding me? <laughs> it's there's glaciers and that. It's just amazing to make sure right. that. Uh, Thinks about the environment a lot. And while you were there, you said you stayed at a friend's house. Did you have salmon? Uh, yeah, we went fishing. I caught nothing, matter of fact. But you know, you see them, they're so big and they're just, the water, the water is so shallow. You just want to like, well, I can reach down and get them. <laughs> you know, I, 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 with one company I worked with, I was up there and uh, a few, so I went to a few different houses while I was there. And we always had salmon. We, everybody has salmon in their freezer. Yeah, they do. And I had some at a sushi bar, and the, the whole salmon is laying on a thing, and you get the sashimi, and he goes over with a knife, and he literally cuts it out of the fish, puts it on the plate, and bring it to you. And I go, ugh. You know, but it's, it's that fresh. You know, it's, it's, the fish is there open, and you're like, man, is that how it really does it? Oh, yeah. 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 It was nice. good, though. It was really good. Good. Excellent. Well, if our audience would like to follow you online, uh, you said LinkedIn is where they could find you? Yeah, LinkedIn is where I, I uh, hang out and I scroll a lot. I find out a lot of stuff about the BCN on LinkedIn. <laughs> I didn't even know. I go, oh, <laughs> I know that. I found a webinar. I said, oh, I didn't know that was coming. And that's how I signed up for it. Excellent. Great. Excellent. Well, I want to take this time to thank you, Alan, for joining us for this episode of BCN and Friends. Thank you for sharing your time, your stories, and just being with us here today. Thank you so much, Alan. No, thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. Thank you for your time. And to all our listeners, we hope you stay tuned as we continue on with BCN and Friends and bring you new and meaningful content and perspectives. If you have a suggestion for an episode, please email us at bcn at bcn.org. I am Mark Eggers here with Janie Shoemaker, and on behalf of the entire BCN team, we thank and celebrate you for all that you are doing as professional nurses across the emergency spectrum. Until next time, 